Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And this month's episode is on the ethics, morality of beauty, and actually also a little bit on The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I speak to philosophy professor and author Heather Widows about her new book Perfect Me and why she thinks beauty has become a moral imperative. And inspired by the theme of morality and appearance, we go on a mini rant about why it's so problematic to attribute moral standards to our size and weight and what we do and do not eat. Yes, and give you a little insight into some of the discussions we have in the PhD office. You mean zoo, Nadia? <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably should explain that for our listeners at home. Yeah, good point. So Nadia and I, alongside a fellow CAR PhD students, have a great office at UWE. We love our office, don't we, Nadia? Mm-hmm, um, we do. Uh, so we're definitely not complaining, but it's funny because the wall alongside the corridors, which is all glass, so people just walk by, stop, stare, and occasionally they tap on the glass for its some attention. I think it's a great pastime of some professors we know. Anyway, <laughs> um, we now have signs on the glass that say, please don't feed the animals. Oh no, but please don't feed the PhD students. Yeah, it is. Yeah, please don't feed the PhD students. Although thinking about it, we should probably have one about don't tap on the glass. Like maybe please refrain from tapping on the glass. It might distress the inhabitants. <laughs> That's actually quite valid, Nadia. Um, I'll update those signs, add them to our PhD student ones. <laughs> mm, good, good plan. Anyway, back to the episode. We want to start with a short five-minute Ignite talk by body image researcher Dr Laura Hart, who's based at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Laura gave this incredible talk at our recent Appearance Matters 8 conference as part of an Ignite panel session, where each speaker was asked to think outside the box and talk for five minutes about an innovation, idea or trend from outside our field that could benefit body image and appearance research or practice. Laura's talk beautifully links body image, appearance pressures and The Handmaid's Tale, a novel by Margaret Atwood, which was originally published in 1985. The book has been recently televised and has been hugely popular. And I actually think the show won eight Emmys in 2017. Right, it's really captured people's imaginations, I think. Anyway, Laura invites us to imagine a world free of appearance pressure and asks us what we can learn from the Republic of Gilead, the fictional totalitarian society where The Handmaid's Tale is set. We were both obsessed with the talk, so we felt we had to share it with you on the podcast. Yeah, and the talk also inspired me to watch the whole of The Handmaid's Tale. I actually got through both seasons in two weeks, if not less, actually, following the conference. And if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend you do give it a watch. Perhaps not quite in the same short time span that I did. Oh, you really were inspired, Jade. Aren't episodes an hour long each? Yeah, 23 solid hours right there. Thanks, Laura. Love that. (laughs) Okay, well, let's play the clip. Let us know if it inspires you to watch or read The Handmaid's Tale. Perhaps we should at Margaret Atwood. Good idea. I want you to imagine a world free of the pressure to be thin. There are few mirrors and no makeup. No size zero, no fashion trends, no magazines, advertisements or social media posts. Women do not compare their appearance to others, or judge themselves for being too fat, too thin, too ugly, too black, too white, too wrinkly, too young, too much, or too little of anything based on appearance. I think you might be imagining some idyllic island with bodies flowing freely, and this sounds like a body image panacea, right? It could be. Except that this description also fits the Republic of Gilead. 
Gilead is a world that was first described by Margaret Atwood in her 1985 novel The Handmaid's Tale. It has more recently become well known through the TV series starring Elizabeth Moss. The second season is currently screening internationally and it has generated much discussion about how our own society is at risk of slipping into this disturbing dystopia. In the fictional Republic of Gilead, elite Christian Orthodox males have taken over control of society, ostensibly to recover it from rising infertility and moral and environmental degradation. The ruling male class are known as the commanders. In this world, women fall into one of six classes. The barren wives are those who return to post-war gender norms. They stay at home, are excluded from the workforce and decision-making. Their primary role is to keep house and pray for children. The aunts are the barren but pious women, leading and educating the handmaids. There are econo-wives and unwomen, and the Marthas are those whose role is servitude to the ruling elite. And of course, the handmaids, whose sole purpose is to conceive children with the commanders so that he may raise a family with his wife. Handmaids are then discarded once children are delivered. In Gilead, mirrors are banned and so is makeup. Magazines are burnt and advertising outlawed. Women do not compare themselves to others or judge themselves for being too much or too little of anything based on appearance. Instead, women are reduced to their biological functions. What a price to pay to be free from appearance pressure. In the book, Margaret Atwood writes, There is more than one kind of freedom, said Aunt Lydia, freedom to and freedom from. In the days of anarchy, it was freedom to. Now you are being given freedom from. Don't underrate it. Gilead is freedom from appearance pressure, freedom from the thin, sexualized ideal, but it is not freedom to, to be yourself, to realize your potential, to be embodied, or to enjoy embodiment. What we can learn from the Republic of Gilead is the necessity of social justice. Social justice is the pursuit of understanding and eradicating injustice and inequality. In our search to create freedom from appearance pressure, we must ensure there is freedom too, to express our identity, our gender, our sexual orientation, our ethnicity, our race, our size, our ability, or any essence of ourselves. Although rigidly rejecting of appearance pressures, the Republic of Gilead is also rejecting of appearance diversity. Every person's appearance is regulated by their rank and role in society. Handmaids wear red, commanders wear black, their wives wear blue, the aunts brown. There is no tolerance of appearance diversity nor expression of individuality. A primary reason why our current beauty ideal is so damaging is because it is so narrow. Generally, only thin, tall, white people get to represent beauty, and this ideal is a construction of race, class, and gender politics in our society. 
What we can learn is that appearance diversity is important to social equality. And conversely, until we have social justice, we will continue to have body dissatisfaction. Because beauty ideals are socially constructed, yet the power structures within our society mean that not all social groups have equal access to construct ideals of beauty. We cannot prevent body dissatisfaction without social justice. So perhaps instead of imagining a world where all appearance pressures are eliminated, we should be imagining a world where all social injustice is eradicated, a world in which if we lived, we too would be free of appearance pressure. I love that presentation, and just to help you visualise The Handmaid's Tale, for those who haven't seen it, the handmaids all wear a uniform, which is a long red dress, and they have wings on their head, which are white, and they're kind of like hats that shield the face on either side, and perhaps one of my favourite quotes from the first series is when the main character, June, also named Alfred, says something like, if they don't want us to be an army, they shouldn't have put us all in uniform, which, without giving too much away, is quite an interesting point. Mm, intriguing. Okay, we're going to get to Professor Heather Widow very soon, but just on the theme of ethics and morality and then in relation to beauty and the body, we wanted to tie in some quick links with how we talk and moralise food. Yeah, and this is so important because we are bombarded with messages that body size or food that we eat has some kind of intrinsic worth. Um, and that what size you are and the food you eat say something about you as a person or your moral character. Right, and language here is key. So starting off talking about food, for example, labelling certain foods as good or clean is hugely problematic as it implies other foods are therefore bad or, quote, dirty, so then can lead to people feeling guilty about, quote, indulging in them. And then this guilt factor is a problem because it can trigger restrictive eating or other disordered eating behaviours. Yeah, totally. And this kind of language also gives certain foods a halo effect, like you'll be a better person if you eat clean or gluten-free or paleo or whatever. But spoiler alert, no amount of kale or green juice or turmeric or whatever the latest superfood is, is going to make you better, kinder or a more generous person. It feels almost ridiculous to say this out loud, but what you eat or don't eat has absolutely no bearing on your character. I think especially as women, we're kind of conditioned to feel virtuous when we, I don't know, eat a salad or it's almost as though we've committed a deadly sin if we've eaten a piece of cake or something similar, which is really kind of impressive and I feel pretty much encourages disordered eating behaviour. Anyway, on gluten-free, there's a really recent study from Project Eat. Project Eat, sorry to interrupt you Nadia, but just quickly to say Project Eat is a well-known research project that has been tracking a diverse group of American adolescents on body image and eating behaviour as they go into adulthood. The project is led by Professor Diane Neumach-Steiner, who our regular listeners might remember from our eating disorder prevention episode. Right. One of the most recent papers based on Project Eat data, led by Dr Mary Christoph, found that approximately 13% of young adults valued gluten-free foods, which is kind of curious, and most of the population are not adversely affected by gluten at all, so have no need to value gluten-free foods. Isn't it just people who have celiac disease that need to avoid gluten? I think so, for the most part, although there might be some other like specific intolerances. But in general, I think the evidence is pretty clear that most people don't benefit from a gluten-free diet. It's just marketed as a, quote, healthy option. But I think what's concerning about this particular Project Eat study is that people who valued the gluten-free foods were also more likely to engage in disordered eating behaviour, like using diet pills or self-induced vomiting. Mm, And this potentially reflects the link between dieting in general and disordered eating. 
Right, Professor Diana Newark-Steinis spoke about that link more in episode 23. But back to the morality of food and bodies. The other thing about framing certain foods as morally superior, i.e. quote superfoods, is that they're also very expensive and I don't think there's any evidence to show that avocados or blueberries or uh, quinoa are going to catapult you into good health and as we said make you a better more more likable person. Yeah no one should feel guilty for not eating any of the above particularly if it's a matter of cost and then it becomes like a status thing like I'm able to purchase this fancy avocado and you're not. Yeah, and I think it's been interesting because we've seen a backlash against the kind of quote clean eating trend, but I don't think we've completely moved away from assigning morals or morality to food. Just think how often you hear people saying things like, oh, I'm going to be naughty and eat X food, or oh, I'm going to be good and eat Y, whatever that might be. Um, As I said before, it's almost like we're socially conditioned to do this. It's the kind of thing you can say without without even really thinking. Hmm. I'm actually usually pretty good with conversations like that, but I think this has come from a lifetime of seeing both my mum and my nan talk about food in this way, like having a, quote, pig day, um, which would essentially mean a day where they would eat what they wanted after being on a diet for the remainder of the week. This made me hypersensitised to this type of conversation and not attach good or bad labels to food, but I can fall into the trap sometimes, and it's just so common in our society. The other point we should make before we hear from Heather is how, quote, obesity has become a moral issue. We've spoken about weight stigma on the podcast before, and we will again and again, but it's central when it comes to body image. But for now, it's important to highlight that a person's size does not reflect their moral standing at all. Yeah, completely. As we know, Weight-based stereotypes imply that thin bodies are kind of morally superior to bodies that are larger in size because they don't, quote, burden society. We constantly hear that kind of thing in, in the media about the cost of the, again, quote, obesity epidemic. And the media kind of positions it as though thin people are never sick and being much larger in size is a consequence of personal or moral failings. Which it categorically is not. Being thin doesn't make you better, kinder and more socially responsible person. Totally, and I think a lot of this links back to our Fat Talk episode. Episode 25, by mm-hmm. the way. <laughs> Which is well worth listening if you haven't already. Anyway, now time to hear from Professor Heather Widows. Heather is the John Ferguson Professor of Global Ethics and the Deputy Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Research Impact at the University of Birmingham. She has recently published an excellent book called Perfect Me, Beauty as an Ethical Ideal, and we were delighted to have her speak at our recent Appearance Matters 8 conference on a panel on the cosmetic surgery industry. Hi Heather, thank you so much for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. We're really excited to have you, especially after hearing you speak at our recent Appearance Matters conference on a panel on the cosmetic surgery industry. You blew us away and we thought we had to get you on the podcast. So, hi. What a pleasure, thank you. Great, thank you. So I've just finished reading your book, Perfect Me, which explores the changing and ethical nature of the beauty ideal. And there's so much in there that I want us to talk about. But first, I thought it would be nice to start because you're a professor in philosophy and most of us, well, definitely at the Centre for Appearance Research, all have a background in psychology or and definitely in the social sciences when we're talking about body image. So can you tell me like, why it's important to think about body image from a philosophy perspective? In a way that moral philosophy has stopped thinking about body image and beauty in recent decades, when for a very long time, beauty was something that obsessed philosophers. So if you go back to the beginning of philosophy, Plato was obsessed with beauty. And yet moral philosophy has kind of stopped talking about beauty. 
Um, political philosophy does a little bit, but not much. But yet, so much of beauty is about morality and about ethics. So mm-hmm. beauty talk is nearly all moral talk. So you're worth it, you deserve it, you let yourself go. These are all moral judgments and moral claims. And yet, philosophy has not got involved. And I think that's the bit that I bring to the debate. And the work of social scientists and psychologists and sociologists is so useful to me in making my philosophical arguments. But I think without the ethical and moral piece of the puzzle, it's hard to understand just how powerful the beauty ideal is. And some of the advice that we give about resisting and resilience and just how demanding that is of young women only really makes sense when you can see the moral element that's going on as well. Yeah, completely. And I think maybe building on from that then, because in your book, one of your main arguments is that beauty now functions as an ethical ideal. And so can you just expand a bit more with what you mean by that? Sure thing. Right. So what I mean by an ethical ideal is, 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 is I think, quite straightforward. It's kind of what we value most. It's our value framework. So for very many of us, beauty has become that thing of value in itself. It's what we talk about. It's what we think about. It's what we spend our hard-earned cash and time on, and succeeding at beauty has become success in general, and failing at beauty, letting ourselves go, has become making ourselves a failure. And these, these, this is a very um, standard view of what an ethical ideal is. It's what you value most, um, it's what you aim at, um, and for itself, right, not for something else. A place where you can clearly see the moral aspect of this is in things like our New Year's resolutions. So these used to be about our character, being a better self, uh, resolutions like things like I will think before I speak or I resolve to be kinder, whereas now being a better self is all about the body. Our most common New Year's resolutions are about losing weight, going to the gym, changing our practice. So the better self, the perfect self that we're striving for, becomes a better body. That's a very different view of what a perfect person is than it used to be. And moral emotions attach to beauty, success and failure. So beauty talk then is very much moral talk. You should make the best of yourself. You're worth it. Your best self is this better body. So if we feel we are good at beauty, then we feel we are virtuous. And if we're bad at beauty, almost no matter what else we're good at, we feel like the failures. So this is a completely different view of what the best self is. And yet it's ubiquitous. It's there everywhere. So as soon as I say this, people go, oh, of course it's like that. The power of that ideal is, is not well recognised because a moral ideal, one that, where you feel ashamed of yourself if you do not live up to it, is something that's particularly difficult to resist or to give up on. So this is one of the reasons that I think it's so important that we recognise the moral element to it because giving up on one's ethical ideal is particularly difficult. Yeah, completely. Thank you for all of that. And so something else that you say in your book that I thought was really interesting is in relation to whether, and this comes up in like feminist debate, I think a lot, is whether we choose or as women we're choosing to pursue beauty ideals. And you discuss that really nicely, I think, in your book. So again, could you could you say a bit more about what you think there? Certainly. Yeah, no, I think this is a really important argument. Um, so, so much of the language around beauty is all about choice. I'm doing it for me, it's for myself. And that's um, the only acceptable 
narrative that we're allowed to use. Except when one looks closely, it is very little of this is about choice. So it's not that we're coerced, it's not that we're suffering from false consciousness. I don't think any of those arguments are true. We are choosing to do this, and these are rational choices in the um, societies in which we live, but they are very limited choices within quite constrained um, with a quite constrained context. But I don't think that we choose our beauty ideals. We choose, to some extent, how much we conform to them. But these are communal and collective ideals, not individual ideals. So in the book, I track um, the way in which beauty practices gradually, particularly in a global context, move from being something that is optional, that's chosen, that's voluntary. Gradually, they become required practices and the language shifts from being about beauty, something that you do for pleasure, um, to beautify, to something that you do for other reasons, for health reasons or hygiene reasons or just to be normal. So I talk about this rising bar of what's required to be normal. So one example that I spend a lot of time on in the book is the um, changes to body hair removal. Mm -hmm. I think that's a practice where we're in the process of it having been a beauty practice and now it's becoming um, a required practice, so becoming something that's more like teeth cleaning or hair brushing rather than something that's seen as beautifying. So increasingly um, removing all visible body hair is now something that most women do just to be normal, just to be good enough. And if you look at the literature, women talk about body hair being disgusting, dirty mm. and even unnatural. And then it comes to the point where you have to do it just to be normal. And you think that that's required. So that's an example where you move, where it, it's very much not a choice. Um, mm. It's something that one has to do. And you can track that move for a lot of beauty practices. So in her in a, her recent book, Dana Berkowitz argues that um, Botox is a practice that in very many places in the United States has already become something that's required, something that's normalised, something that you just have to do to be good enough. And gradually I see no reason that that won't extend. There are very many places where it's already routine, normal and effectively required to have cosmetic surgery. Mm-hmm. So Korea, South Korea and Brazil being the most obvious examples. So routinely we get this rising of what's normal. So of course it is the case individually we choose to do this. But if you look collectively, and that's what's so important to shift the focus from individual to collectively, more and more becomes required routinely, every day, to be normal, to be good enough. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And then the third thing in your book was this concept of like the imagined self and how that's kind of evolving over time, maybe in, in the digital age. Could you expand on that and say a bit about what you mean by the imagined self and how that relates to the kind of shift in, in beauty ideals? Yeah, that's, that's crucial to my argument, the way that the ethical ideal functions mm-hmm. and why it's so embedded in us is because the body that we identify is not just our actual body, the one that we may be dissatisfied with, it's also our transforming self and our imagined final self, our perfect me. So we identify with all of these bodies. So we identify with our actual body, which we're often dissatisfied with. In fact, it's become normal to be dissatisfied with one's actual body, so much so that I think a woman who said that she's not dissatisfied with her body in any shape or form is a little bit 
Mm. But then there's a transforming self. This is the one we're working on. This can be feeling like a very empowering self. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're, you know, when you're going for the burn or working out or you're sticking to your diet, this this can be feeling a very empowering, transforming self. And then there's the imagined perfect self, the one that you will have at the end of your process, whether you've burned your size enough or lost your weight or you raised your wrinkles, right? That perfect you, the best you. And this is the one that, that we invest in at the end of the process. So giving up on the body, giving up on the self in a really strong sense in this context. So that perfect self is one that, that has a lot of power over us because it's not um, a mere object. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an imagined self that we invest in. So you can see this when young girls talk about what they want to do and they say things like, um, well, if you imagine yourself as a successful businesswoman, you picture yourself as a really skinny person with a great haircut or things like that. So this is the happy future self where we imagine it ourselves living whatever life it is that we want to do, having being successful, whether it's, you know, being a happy mum on the school run with a bright white smile or mm-hmm. being with your lover on a beach, you know. So the imagined self is that that best you that you're working towards and you're transforming self. And in visual and virtual culture, I think that this self um gained a lot more reality than it did in previous generations. Because this is the self that we kind of are hinting at when we post our selfies on Instagram or we tell our visual stories through images. So nobody looks like their selfies, um, their best selfies, their best Instagrams. Taking a good selfie is a skill set that's usually quite high, especially for those of us like me who were teenagers before email. Take a good selfie, you have to make up properly, get all your contouring in the right places. Then you have to take it at the right angle with the right filter and then often you doctor it with the right app and then you post it and then you wait for likes to come in. Now we all know this. We all know that the images that we see on Instagram of celebrities and of our peers don't look like they do. They look when they get up in the morning and they're just themselves in the mirror. That these are perfected pictures. This is the idealised, imagined self. And yet, even though we know this, we understand that images adopted, they still impact upon us. So our imagined self, this perfect me, is very much part of who we are mm. and very influenced by the culture in which images and the visual self and the visual rather than text-based communication has become so dominant. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you for all of that. And I think that's something that you said in your book. It's almost like the process of striving to achieve that imagined self that's so powerful. It's not even necessarily achieving it at the end. It's kind of that just process of constantly trying to, to get right, there. That's absolutely right. And that's true of all ethical ideals. And that's right. where the ethical ideal bit helps. Like one is never perfectly truthful. We have little white lines, right? We use that phrase for a reason. Mm-hmm. So whatever one's perfect is, part of what is important in an ethical ideal is that you have to keep striving at it and working at it because it's a way to live. So it's never actually going to be successful because one can never be perfect. And that's something about the nature of any successful, dominant ethical ideal. Right. It always remains beyond. Perfection is always beyond and it's the working for it that is so important. And in the beauty ideal, that you know, the, the, the vast gulf between our perfect imagined self and our actual self is, is bigger than in very many ideals. 
part of the reason that we keep striving and keep working is that there is this big gap. And sometimes we feel that the gap is so overwhelming, hence it's what I would describe as a global epidemic in body image anxiety. Mm-hmm. And yet it's not all negative. It's a very mixed ideal because that transforming self feels empowering. It feels like we are valuing ourselves and being good to ourselves. And the mixed nature of the beauty ideal is one of the reasons that it's so utterly compelling and captivating. So I talk about it as a, you know, an iron fist, but one that is um, bejeweled with rings and manicured nails. So <laughs> very, very seductive Funny. and very, very mm-hmm. destructive. That iron fist with the bejeweled rings is funny. <laughs> so, kind of like my last main question from the book is that you argue that the pressures on women are greater today than than ever before, and I think some people would argue that you know women across time and cultures have gone to great lengths to achieve particular beauty ideals. So, can you say what you think about why it is bigger today? Yes, thank you. That's 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 an important one because it's one that I get all the time. But yeah. Oh, foot binding that was worse. Yeah. And my answer is yes, foot binding was worse, right? So thinness, firmness, smoothness and use. Those are how I define the global beauty ideal with those four features. And um, it's not the same in all places, they could be played off against each other, but the trajectories are coming together and thinness, firmness, smoothness and use is arguably not as demanding as foot binding or corset wearing or any of those things. And that of course is true. But we have never before had a global ideal. And we have never, therefore, before had this normalising and naturalising such that the demands gradually rise everywhere. So, you know, so um, let me take foot binding. Mm -hmm. That was incredibly demanding of a small group of women. But while the aristocratic Chinese woman that had her foot bound might think that that foot was desirable, beautiful, even perfect, she could never have believed that that was normal or natural because it has never been the case that all women were required to do it. Most women did not. They could not because most women were working in the fields or for domestic labour um, and there were also very many cultural differences. So she could clearly see that women in her own society didn't do it and women in other societies didn't do it. And indeed, if we come to corset wearing, one of the reasons that the suffragettes today, when they threw off their corsets, was, look, our maids are not needing corsets. Mm. So there were always competing ideas. So you could never have that kind of normalising, naturalising, ratcheting up um, requirement that is happening now, today. And that is really significant. And that's where the ethical bit comes in. Like Only something where you are normalising, when you can be shamed for not doing it, Mm. get that strong moral compunction. So I think it's an incredibly different moment. We really have never before had a global ideal. We have never before had the kind of technical ability to do so much. Now there's so much that we can do and there's a sense in which because we can do things, we think we should do things. When enough people do things, it becomes normal and then it becomes required. So I think we're in a very different moment. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And and then so then it kind of all feels like quite overwhelming then. Do you have, you know, from, from all the work that you've been doing, what might be your suggestions for how we move forward or how we move away from this kind of global yeah. body image anxiety that you spoke about? Yeah, I think there's an awful lot we can do. And the most important thing that we can do is do it collectively. Right. So I am very clear that what we must not do is blame individuals for what they do or do not do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that divides women, it blames women, and it just increases the shame or the guilt, whether it's for doing things or whether it's for not doing things. You know, women shame women for not removing body hair, and then other women shame other women for having cosmetic surgery. All that stuff is completely destructive, must stop. So the first and most important thing we can do is recognise the power of the ideal, that this is an ethical ideal, and therefore blaming individual women for conforming to their communal norms or rejecting their communal norms is wholly destructive. It doesn't work, it hasn't worked, and it just, in fact, allows the ideal to embed more. So let's stop that individual blaming. Mm-hmm, completely. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. So stop the blaming, recognise the power of the ideal and I think that's actually, you know, that's not nothing. I think once one starts recognising that it is communal, that it is powerful, we're not crazy to feel like this. The women are not, that, you know, this is a rational response. I think that's a really healthy first start. And then we can start looking communally about what we do. So I really think we need to switch our, our, our lens of the global epidemic of body and anxiety to a public health issue mm-hmm. and focus on making a less toxic environment. And then there's all kinds of things, often led by your discipline, that, that we know help. Um, you know, diversification of the images in which people see, where we really do see diverse images, so that that, that idealisation is less embedded. Um, you know, working, you know, communicating about um, body shame and anxiety, um, a lot of the resilience training is, is really important. Um, and, and I also think we could do something quite, quite, um, easily about how we respond to body shaming talk. So we mm. don't blame individuals for what they do or do not do, but maybe we do blame individuals when they shame other individuals for our bodies. Fat shaming or body shaming is just wholly unacceptable and destructive. Yeah, I completely sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I completely agree with the body shaming, and we we talk about fat talk and body talk a lot, and um, how you know if we kind of stop doing that, how yeah. powerful that could be. So. Yeah, just Absolutely. And, you know, the beauty ideal is mixed. So, you know, my last chapter is called Beauty Without the Beast. Mm-hmm. You know, I, don't, I, I think bodies and beauty are important. So I don't, I don't want to go back to a world uh, which philosophy is often done where we only care about the mind. We need to care about the body and beauty. Mm-hmm. But it must not be all that matters. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think that's a really nice way to end. I just have one fun question to, to finish off, Heather. Um, and we ask it, well, when I remember, to all, all our guests on the podcast, because at CAR we host a weekly coffee and cake morning. And so I wondered if you came along one week, what cake you might bring. I don't like cake. Don't like cake. <laughs> I am a really weird. I really don't. I don't like cake. I've never liked cake. Um, I always had my birthday, um, you know, ice cream with a candle in the middle. Okay, well, in this weather, in this heat wave that we're having, ice cream would go down a treat. So yeah, bring, yeah, I would bring vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce. That would be that would be wonderful. That would be very welcome. So you can come along any Tuesday, any time. <laughs> Either that or brie and tomato. That would be my party too. Oh, wonderful. How funny. Well, Heather, thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been really great talking with you and, and hearing um, all you have to say. We'll have a link to the book in our show notes so people can, if they want to find out more, they can, they can do so that way. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. So interesting to hear about the topic beauty and body image from a slightly different perspective. 
a lot of food for thought this episode, thanks to Heather and Laura. We really are lucky with our guests, aren't we, Jade? Yes, we're actually very lucky. And we're going to be hearing from Laura again next month alongside friends of the podcast, Dr. Zali Yeager and Dr. Ivanka Pritchard, when we are going to be talking about body image in months. Yeah, it's going to be a great episode, so make sure you're subscribed so you're the first to hear. Yeah, and if you're feeling generous, also tap five stars on the Apple Podcasts. Um, it helps others find our podcast. Yeah, it really does make a difference. And last note, we haven't said, have you seen our new artwork? I know, right? It's great. I'm so chuffed. Federica Batoli done an excellent job. Yeah, so again, I think you have to be subscribed to see it on iTunes, so have a look. Yeah, and let, let us know, know what, what you think. think. Oh! <laughs> 